following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Good morning. Um, my name is Grant. I'm um, definitely not a pastor or a qualified minister, so you're going to get what you pay for this morning. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, and uh, Nina Field is going to come and read this morning. Thanks, Nina. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Thank you, Nina. So I want you to think about a time where you had to make a choice, right? You had two alternatives in front of you that were both good, but you could only choose one. So maybe there's a choice between taking a new job or staying in your current one. Maybe the choice between Auckland or Massey for university, for chemistry or history at school. Maybe it's a choice to go back to work or stay home with the kids to retire early or to keep working. Or maybe you were just that popular that you got invited to two parties on a Friday night and you can only go to one. How do you choose? Lucky you. Provided you are not forced to take one of the options, you are always going to choose what you think is the better offer. Guarantee you. I remember throwing a party in my 20s. I invited all my mates, including one of my best mates at the time, and he didn't show up. It could have been my engagement party. It's been a long time since then, but... Um, a long time since my 20s. And when I asked him about it uh, a couple of days later, he said, uh, got a better offer. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. But we're all like that, right? We're always choosing what we think is best for our families, for our finances, for our time, for our health, for our mental health, or for just what we want to do on a Friday night that seems best. Uh, and if you don't believe me, just think about this. Have you ever heard anyone say, you know, there's a new job going and it's paying a lot less than what I've got right now. It's making me work longer hours and it's further away from home. Can't wait to start. We always choose the better offer if we can help it. Okay, so was Jesus making a better offer here? Was Jesus handing out something to the disciples that was so much better than what they had? Was this a compelling offer that would compel them to leave their families? leave their jobs, the sole source of security and way of providing for themselves in the ancient world. There was no superannuation for these guys. There was no welfare. There was no safety net. There was nothing. Was this a better offer? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That is not follow me and I will make you rich and powerful. Follow me and I'll make you famous and everyone will love you. It's none of those things. And I'm telling you, if somebody turned up in my workplace and said, follow me, I'll make you fishes of men, I don't think I'm even getting out of my chair. Would you? Okay. All right. To understand what Jesus was holding out and inviting the disciples into, 
we need to place this story in the context of the big story of Scripture. And in particular, we need to root this passage in Genesis 3. All right? Now, for the sake of time, you don't have to turn to Genesis 3. I'll just summarize what happens in that passage. But please feel free to check my interpretation. All right? um, in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve, who symbolize and represent all of humanity, um, have rebelled against God's rule and authority by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one thing God said, don't do. And as a result, there's two really important consequences ripple out. The first is that the relationship between Adam and Eve breaks down, symbolizing that the relationship between human beings has started to break down. Where they could once be naked in front of each other, now they had to hide. And secondly, more importantly, the relationship between God and human beings is now broken. When God was going for a walk in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam and Eve were nowhere to be found. They were hiding. They had come to realize that as sinful people, they could no longer stand in the presence of a holy God. Now, let me pose a hypothetical question for you. Let's just imagine for a moment that Adam and Eve had not sinned against God. They had not rebelled against his rule and authority. God decides to go for a walk in the garden. What do you think Adam and Eve would have done? All right, I'm going to answer that question myself. Okay. <laughs> they would have joined him on his walk. I'm pretty sure they would have gone and joined him. And I'm going to speculate a little bit, so please don't accuse me of heresy, but I have some good reasons for believing this. I'm pretty sure that when they went for a walk with God, that's where he would have taught them, where they would have learned and grown in wisdom and in knowledge. I don't think God ever made human beings to be perfect and complete in knowledge from birth. I think just like Jesus, who learned obedience through what he suffered and grew in wisdom and stature with men, that we too as human beings, just like Adam and Eve, grow and learn. What is clear from Genesis, and that's the speculation over, you can uh, save your emails for later. Uh, what is clear from Genesis 3 is that God always intended to rule the world through human beings, not in spite of them or apart from them, but through them, because we are the only creatures in all of God's creation who bear his image. So part of humanity's job was to reflect God's image out into the world, and through that, God would extend his rule beyond the garden. Instead, what we see in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve are just reflecting their own rebellion against God out into the world. They are reflecting their own sinfulness and self-centeredness into the world. And as a consequence of that, death enters the picture. The ground is cursed. Human beings become progressively more and more corrupt, more and more evil, more inclined towards themselves. People groups start to break apart. The family breaks apart. The first murder happens. Tribes splinter off into more and ever-fighting factions. There's wars between cities and tribes and nations. And people become more and more estranged from God. That's Genesis 3 in a nutshell. And there's a really important parallel there I just want to explore between Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. It's quite simple. God goes for a walk in the garden and calls out to his disciples, Adam and Eve, and they hide. Jesus goes for a walk by the Sea of Galilee and calls out to his disciples, and they follow. Sounds simple, right? But I think that is something profound. I think Matthew is telling us something really profound and deep about the story of Scripture that we might miss if we don't ground this in Genesis 3. What Matthew's trying to tell us is quite simple. The curse of Genesis 3, the destruction and corruption of the world that rippled out from Adam and Eve, is coming to an end through Jesus. 
the broken relationship between God and human beings that happened all the way there is coming to an end. Jesus is launching God's plan of salvation to redeem and restore his creation, and he's doing it by the most simple means possible. He's calling people to follow him, to come into a relationship with him where we are made new, where we reflect God's character more and more, where God's image is restored in us, where we reflect God's character out into the world, and thereby through, through our actions in our lives, we start to extend God's rule to every facet of life. All right, now, if you've stuck with me this long, you've done well. I'm sorry, it's a bit technical, but I'm going to bring it down to earth in just a minute. It's a big story. It can seem a little bit abstract. Let's just bring it down to earth quite quickly for a little minute here. I just want to focus on something that Jesus doesn't say in the passage. It might sound a bit strange because Jesus does say a few things in Matthew there. But I think it's just as important what he doesn't say as what he does. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't say to the disciples... Um, before you follow me, can you just go and offer a sacrifice? Before you follow me, can you have a priest just certify that you have obeyed the law perfectly? And before you follow me, can you just make sure that you haven't touched anything unclean? He doesn't. He just says, follow me. In other words, Jesus does not say to the disciples and to us either, clean up your life and then you can follow me. He called the disciples to come as they were, and that is exactly how he calls us today. Isn't that good news? You do not need to clean up your life before you follow Jesus. You don't have to have the Christian life all figured out before you follow Jesus. You don't have to understand everything about Jesus before you follow him. You simply come as you are. You don't have to stay that way. I hope you wouldn't. But you do come as you are. And that is possible because Genesis 3 is undone by the grace of God. You see, Jesus looks at us and he knows exactly how far short we fall, how far we've wandered off. He knows how self-centered and self-absorbed we are. He knows that we are rebels and sinners who deserve nothing but God's judgment. He sees all of that and still says, follow me because of the cross. Jesus went to the cross, taking the judgment we deserved. You see, in God's kingdom, it was us who were the rebels and the criminals. But Jesus, the Son of God, goes to the cross, crucified the way the Romans took care of criminals and rebels. It was us who were sinful and unclean, unable to come into the presence of a holy God, just like Adam and Eve. Yet on the cross, our sinfulness was laid on Jesus. He bore the full brunt of God's wrath against sin. And God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf by raising him from the dead. And as such, God now clothes us in Christ's righteousness so that what is true of Jesus becomes true of us who follow him. As a, I'm going to look over to the youth and say this. As a young Christian, um, I still kind of think of myself as young, even though I don't feel it anymore. Uh, as a young Christian, um, I would go along to youth group meetings, and I heard a lot of sermons around things like, come to Jesus, give your life to him, and he will wipe your slate clean. Have you ever heard, heard that message before? If you've been around Christian circles, you may have, you may have heard it a bit. Yeah, you know, It's like, come to Jesus, and he will clear your record, as if you've never sinned. And, and I heard that a lot as a kid, and it sounded like good news at the start, but the way it was often presented to me um, via these, you know, these kind of crazy youth group meetings would go to, was it was like, it wasn't redemption, 
It was like Jesus has given you a second chance. There's a difference there, right? Because we know second chances don't come around very often, so you shouldn't mess them up. So in other words, you know, the way it was kind of presented when I was younger was Jesus is taking care of everything up until the point you give your life to him, and then afterwards, you keep your slate clean, all right? <laughs> that is my dad. <laughs> my greatest fan. Thanks, Dad. <clears throat> so, um, I've completely lost my place. <laughs> It's not hard to see where that leads, right? Every time you mess up or you sin or you rebel against the Holy Spirit or you're tempted or you're led away, you feel like you're getting your slate dirty again. You're wrecking the second chance you've been given. Okay? And your walk with Jesus is going to feel a lot less like a walk and more like you're running on a treadmill. You're going really fast, you're working really hard, but you're going nowhere. You know? And Jesus has taken off and he's walking off there and you're just constantly falling behind. You're constantly messing up. You just can't measure up. You just can't keep up. And you're not doing enough. And you're never doing enough. And you always feel like Jesus doesn't love you and you're not a good Christian. Do you ever feel like that? Is it just me? Or? Oh, <laughs> good. Okay. Glad it's not just me. I think what we get wrong here and what I got wrong and didn't understand as a young Christian was the difference between God's mercy and his justice. And this is a really important thing to understand. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. We probably know this one quite well. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's a great verse. But let me explain the difference here between mercy and justice in this verse. Okay? If this verse said God is faithful and merciful, and that was all God was. God definitely is merciful, but he's more than that. God is faithful and merciful would mean when we sin, Jesus turns to the Father and says, Okay, look, I see they've done it again. Yep, yep, it's a thousand times. Okay, but, but please, God, show them some kindness. Give them some mercy. Give them another chance. And God would turn to Jesus and go, oh, okay, you twisted my arm. Fine, I'll give him one more chance. But no more, okay? But it says God is faithful and just. Right? And there's a difference there. You see, when... When God is faithful and just, Jesus turns to the Father and says, I see they've sinned and so do you. We know it's a thousand times and it's probably going to be a thousand more. But you, Father, accepted my sacrifice on the cross as full and final payment for their sin. It would be unjust for you to require any more payment from them. It would be unjust to require two payments for the same sin. My sacrifice is sufficient. And you know what God says? You're right, Jesus. You're right. Your sacrifice is sufficient. I accept them on the basis that my justice has been satisfied by your sacrifice on the cross. There is nothing more for them to pay. Isn't that good news? You see, when Jesus holds out his hand and says, follow me, you know what that is? That's an act of God's grace. That's God extending his grace out to you. He's saying, don't, don't look to anything else or anyone else to save you. Don't look to anything else to give you hope or meaning in life. Trust in me. Trust in what I have done for you on the cross. My sacrifice is sufficient to cover your sin. When Jesus calls you to follow him, he's saying, you will never be more accepted than you are right now because you're not accepted on the basis of what you have or haven't done. You're accepted on the basis of what I've done for you on the cross on your behalf. 
We no longer stand under any condemnation because God will no longer ever condemn Jesus again. Following Jesus starts and ends with grace. Isn't that good news? Yeah. Okay. Second thing I wanted to say about this passage is there's a reason why I've chosen to ground it in Genesis 3 and in the big story of Scripture. Because if you don't, you're going to end up in some very strange places. Now, I'm not big on name and shame, but um, I just want to highlight what one particular commentator might have said about this and gone into a very strange place. Um, some of you will know the name Rob Bell. Does that ring any, ring any bells? Oh. <laughs> All right. A little bit of a clap. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, former pastor of Mars Hill Church, um, you know, key figure in the emergent church movement in the early 2000s, and this has drifted off quite a way, but even back then, you could kind of see he was heading down a bad path. Um, just have a listen to what he says about this passage and a couple of passages about the disciples um, that I've strung together here. All right, now this is Rob Bell talking, so please don't, don't think this is my view. All right, Jesus looks at the disciples as those rejected by a rabbi, as not good enough to be a rabbi themselves. But this rabbi, that's Jesus, believes you can do what he does. He thinks you can be like him. Jesus sees what the disciples could be and could do, and when they fall short, it provokes him to no end. It isn't their failure that's the problem, it's their greatness. They don't realize what they're capable of. God has an amazingly high view of people. God believes that people are capable of amazing things. And I've been told I need to believe in Jesus, which is a good thing. What I'm learning is that Jesus believes in me. Okay. It would be clear those are not my views, all right? Uh, and, and I think he's completely wrong. I think he's missed the mark completely on that one. Let me, let me just explain how here. You see, according to Bell, the problem with human beings is not that we have sinfully rebelled against God, not that we have gone astray. The problem is we're just not living up to our potential. See, the problem is um, that, you know, it's not that Jesus says, follow me, and this is an act of grace to a sinner in need of a savior. It's that God sees something special and amazing in you. See, Jesus calls you because you've got potential greatness. So following Jesus then is not really about Jesus, is it? It's about you. It's about what you can achieve, what potential you have in life. See, Jesus then is just a guide to help you live your best life. See, it's not that God is great and has a great plan to redeem the world. It's that you're great. You just don't know it yet, and Jesus is there to help you discover that greatness. And it's not about having faith in the finished work of Jesus that covers your sin. It's about having faith in yourself, in your abilities, and what you can achieve. I mean, the simplest way I can sum up what, what Rob Bell is promoting here is this is salvation by performance, not salvation by grace. There's not a day that goes by when I don't see an article in the paper highlighting somebody who struggles with mental health or um, talks about high levels of anxiety, uh, particularly in young people. And there are a lot of reasons why the modern world is kind of plagued by anxiety and high levels of depression and things like that. And I'm not going to get into that, but I would just caution you and say theology like this, like what I've talked about with Rob Bell, will only breed high levels of anxiety in your life. It will not bring any peace it will continue to bring you more and more anxiety. 
I start feeling a little bit anxious um, when I've got plans for the day and they don't work out, all right? Like when I've got to rush and get my kids to a swimming lesson on a Tuesday after school and we're rushing to get out the door or it's a tennis lesson on a Saturday morning and we're rushing to get there and we've, been, we've slept in a bit late and the kids have taken ages to get there and then you know, we're finally in the car and we're going and we, we're almost going to make it and we get stuck behind a slow car on Glenfield Road. Even just talking about it now, I can just feel the anxiety rising. You know, I'm, I'm, sit, I'm sitting in the car there and I'm catastrophizing, thinking, oh, if we just wasted all this money on these lessons, and how am I going to explain this to the coach? And the kids are going to get there and they're going to be so grumpy and ready. I'm like, ah, oh, ah. And then, yeah, I, I mean, that's a minor amount of anxiety from a small inconvenience. Okay. Can you imagine how life crippling the anxiety would become if you cannot live up to your potential greatness? If you think you are destined for a great career, what happens when the economy takes a dive and your career is left in ruins? If you think you're destined to break Olympic records or to score tries for the All Blacks, what happens if you break your leg and you don't make it onto the team? When we follow Jesus, our identity, our life, and our purpose is found in Him. Following Jesus means resting and trusting in His finished work. Not in our potential greatness. I'm never going to make myself acceptable to God. I'm never going to live up to the potential God has for me. And that's a good thing in some respects. Because Jesus has lived the life I could never live. He's died the death I should have died, paid the price I should have paid. And just so we're clear, Jesus was not looking at his disciples and thinking, man, these guys have got potential. Oh, if only they could see it. One of his disciples was going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, even if that's like $10,000 today, is that really worth the price of a life? Would any one of us be happy we'd done that? He knew every single one of his disciples was going to desert him when he was arrested. He knew his closest disciple would deny he ever knew him. He knew none of his disciples were going to stand up for him when he was falsely accused before the high priest. He knew no one would contradict the crowds and stop them from calling for his crucifixion. The disciples had not failed to live up to their potential greatness. They had just expressed how sinful and corrupt their own hearts were. They cared more for themselves and their own positions and their own status and their own skins than God in the flesh who walked among them. And you know, you know what the most amazing part of all of this is, though? Jesus knew all of that, and he still said, follow me. The call to the disciples was an act of grace. He says, I know you're sinners. I know your failures. I know you deserve nothing but judgment, but I go to the cross in your place. I will take the judgment you deserve. I will deal with your sin and your rebellion on the cross. Through my sacrifice, you will be made whole. By my stripes, you will be made healed, not your own. Isn't that good news? Okay. So lastly... We've looked at what Jesus didn't say. Why don't we look at what the disciples didn't say? And if we're being accurate, they didn't say anything at all. So I can say anything. Ha <laughs> ha. All right. All right. I'll put some words in the disciples' mouth here. Nope. Um, look, I think it's deliberate, right? I think it's really deliberate that Matthew doesn't have them say anything. Because I think what he's trying to show us here is the disciples don't put any conditions on Jesus. 
Can you imagine the disciples coming up to Jesus after he says, follow me? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, totally, totally keen to follow you, Jesus. Okay, we love, we love this business of, uh, of feeding the poor, helping the sick, and uh, we love that we're, you're probably going to get rid of the Romans, right? Um, we love all of that. We've just, we just got a couple of things to work out in this contract. Is that okay? Can we just talk? Um, look, I don't like this idea of my family not having food while I'm away. Can you just make sure you send some money to them so they're looked after? And, and look... Um, I really don't want my business to fail while we're following you. Is it okay if you just, can you make sure the business keeps going and you keep having us financially buoyant and that'd be great. Um, is it okay if we just keep doing business on the side? You know, maybe we sell them three fish and call it four. It's okay. Ooh. Didn't put any conditions, ifs or buts or as long as or anything like that. It was just follow him. Matthew's trying to tell us that it is Jesus plus nothing, no conditions. You see, as soon as you put a condition on following Jesus, what you've just revealed is that you don't want to follow Jesus, you want to follow that thing. And you just want Jesus to help you get there. Jesus just becomes a means to an end for you to get what you want. All right, let me put it this way. I remember Reuben preached a sermon uh, a few years ago, probably during the COVID times, and, and I quite honestly can't remember a word of what that sermon was about. Um, but I do remember this illustration he used, and I'm going to shamelessly steal it um, and repurpose it for the sermon. Uh, but full credit where credit is due. Yeah. A lot of Christians think of following Jesus like using an app on your phone. He might be the app you use first in the day. He might be the app you use most. But he's still just one app on your phone among many competing for your attention. When what Jesus really should be is the operating system on your phone. Okay? Operating system that controls and regulates the behavior of all of those apps on your phone. You know, the one that controls the finance app, the friendship app, the social app, the marriage app, the work app, the how you behave when you're behind the wheel of a car app, the generosity function, the speech function, all of that should be regulated by the operating system. Now, what happens if you place a whole lot of conditions and ifs and buts and all sorts of things like that on following Jesus? That's not just something that slows down the operating system. It's like trying to run two separate operating systems at the same time on your phone. What happens if you do that? Your phone crashes. Most phones are only designed to run one at a time. And even if you could, eventually at some point, you're going to have to choose which operating system are you going to run. I think we've stretched that illustration to breaking point. But coming back to Matthew 4, at some point you're going to have to choose. Am I going to, am I going to follow what I think is the good, good life? What I think life should be about? Or am I going to follow Jesus? And am I going to trust that he, uh, he knows what life is all about? You see, when we follow Jesus, we're welcomed back into God's family as his children. Right? Not his employees. Jesus doesn't draw up a contract and say, all right, I'll do X, Y, and Z for you, but you better fulfill your side of the bargain. And I think that's a really good thing because people who work for an employer are entitled to wages. And Paul wrote in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. All God owes us for our rebellion against him is judgment. But the amazing thing is that Jesus has taken our judgment on the cross He's taken our sin. He's taken it and paid the price for it. And we stand completely free and welcomed into God's family. Isn't that good news? 
Jesus holds out his hand to you today. Same thing he said to the disciples all those years ago. Holds out his hand to me as well. And he says the same thing. Follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. It was a great chasm between us and you. And you bridged that through the cross. We thank you, Lord, that yes, our slate is wiped clean, but you've taken out that slate, that heart of stone we had, and replaced it with a heart of flesh. You filled us with your Holy Spirit. Christ in us is the hope of glory we have. Lord, those whom you called, you justified, and those whom you justified, you've glorified. Our fate is sealed in you. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness, for the, the, uh, the immense cost it was for you to go to the cross in our place. The eternal God who left oh, all the comforts of heaven and became nothing, all so that we could be made whole. Lord, we look forward to the day when we are truly made new, when we are raised from the dead to new life, and you wipe away every tear, and you say, behold, I'm making all things new. We're not there yet, Lord, but we can't wait for that day. We pray that you would be with us this week through your Holy Spirit, leading us and guiding us and helping us to grow in your grace. Because in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.